This is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. Okay, so a complete hypothetical here. Absolutely, positively not based on anything that has actually happened involving hmm, my own daughter. Let's say your child is six years old and you're watching them play soccer one day and joy of joys, they steal a ball, they break away and they go on to score a last minute game winning goal. But then let's say they run past the poor kid who they just took the ball from and they say something to that poor kid that is just, well, it's just unsporting, it's mean. The referee doesn't hear it, there's no yellow or red card, but you know what your kid has done and you know it's wrong. And so, well, you've got to punish them, right? Like you don't really have a choice. It's just what has to be done. If you're a parent, you've had a situation like this, but if you're like most people, and even if you're a parent, you probably haven't spent a lot of time pondering why we punish wrongdoing and you're not alone. Punishment is baked into just about every facet of our society. If you get caught speeding on the highway, if you get caught cheating on a test, if if you forget to take out your garbage can too many times or fail to clean the snow off of your walk, there are potential punishments everywhere. But why? Why do we do this? Is it to teach a lesson? Is it to seek retribution? Is it to balance the scales? Well, my guest today spends quite a lot of time thinking about these questions and devising and carrying out experiments that help us understand how and why we punish other human beings. Her latest study, recently published in the journal Nature Human Behavior, demonstrates that the urge to punish is so strong that even as children, many people are willing to make personal sacrifices in order to see a wrongdoer punished. Julia Marshall, welcome to Undisciplined. Hi, I'm super happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Julia, you've been publishing for about five years now, and I just want to go over a list of some of your topics you've worked on in that relatively short time. You've written on the moral compasses of psychopaths. (laughs) You've written about corporal punishment. You were part of a team that sought to dismantle the notion that humans exhibit natural altruism. Julia... Your research agenda got dark real quick. Yeah, I guess I I never even realized that until now. But, you know, some people say that you study what you are, and hopefully that's not true of me, at least. (laughs) Okay, so what is it that what is it about these sorts of topics that draws you? Because like, we've only known each other for a couple of minutes here, but I don't feel this from you, right? What, what is it that's drawing you to this kind of dark matter? Yeah, it's a great question. I think for the most part, when I was in college, I was really thinking I was going to pursue a career in the legal world, studied for the LSAT, thought I was going to go to law school. I've always just been really interested in issues around crime and punishment. And unfortunately, those topics happen to be a bit dark, but I'd like to think it's good that lighter people study them. What made you shift? What got you? Okay, I'm not going to do law. I'm going to do I'm going to do psychology. If I'm honest, I just really loved research more than I liked the idea of becoming a lawyer. Like once I learned more about what being a lawyer actually meant, I felt like I wasn't going to be able to pursue the sorts of questions I was interested in answering. And so it was definitely just getting more involved in research and finding the research process super fulfilling and really interesting that sort of drew me away. But even still, I mean, legal questions are super interesting. And I think the idea of studying them from a scientific standpoint is really what fascinates me the most. So you start 
diving into these things, going in one direction, but they draw you in. What is it that, that draws you in? I think it's the questions are very fundamental to human nature. And as you said in your introduction, punishment is around us all the time. And this is something that directly impacts us throughout our entire life. And so I was just really curious coming from sort of having, you know, little experience with law, but sort of being exposed to these ideas, wanting to understand more deeply, why did these social behaviors emerge? How early do they emerge? Why do we, you know, why do we do this, this weird thing called punishment? Why do we have moral judgments that we care about other people? Those sorts of questions were really fascinating to me. Given how much punishment plays a role in like every facet of our society. And I should say, and I mentioned this to you off air, like I had never thought so much about how much punishment is around us until I read your most recent study and really started deconstructing like, oh my God, this is really baked into everything we do. How is it that we haven't spent more time researching punishment? Well, I mean, I'll push back a little bit. We have studied punishment in some senses quite a bit. So from the psychological standpoint, we know punishment from sort of a behaviorist standpoint plays a really big role in changing people's behavior. But that's somewhat distinct from what I'm thinking of punishment, which is sort of legal punishment, criminal justice-oriented questions. And the reason we haven't studied that as much, I think, is mostly because it's a very complicated topic. And punishment takes a lot of different forms in, in our everyday lives. So, for example, punishment might be getting a ticket because you, you know, parked on the wrong side of the street, but it also might be being sent to jail for having done a heinous crime. And so as a result, it's kind of hard to nail down exactly what it is because it takes so many different forms. And so what you've sort of chiseled out for yourself is this really interesting academic career where you're leading and conducting and participating in experiments in which you're trying to get at the nature of this thing and how it exists in different stages of of human evolution and then also developmental evolution, right? Yeah, correct. Okay, so you once led an experiment in which children were given the opportunity to press buttons so that puppets would be hit with a hammer. Yes, that's true. <laughs> but there, there was a serious motive for this experiment and yes. and a pretty serious finding. Your your results indicated that children don't generally have a strong desire to physically punish wrong exactly. doers. T tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, so the inspiration for this study, although I when you, it sounds a little gimmicky when you describe it, but I think it's really getting at this very fundamental question about humans. I did my PhD in a lab that's been very interested in how infants and children reason about moral issues. And in that lab, there was a very famous study that looked at how infants, um, whether they have preferences for pro-social or nice actors or antisocial and mean actors. And we know from that research, which I could talk about more if you'd like, that young children and infants prefer nice people, but they also have a desire to sort of be mean towards antisocial ones. But we wanted to test sort of the extent to which they were willing to punish or be mean. And related to what I said earlier about how punishment comes in a lot of different forms, punishment might be a parking ticket, but it also might be being corporately punished, such as being spanked as a child. And so we wanted to see the lengths to which children were willing to go to punish an antisocial other. And we didn't find evidence that children in our studies were willing to punish in this way, which in some ways is a really great thing. 
um, because corporal punishment might not be a, an effective way at punishing others. And so the fact that young children aren't doing this, you know, could be considered a very positive aspect of the children that we're raising. The way you carried out this experiment, the puppet thing, was that something you came up with? Or was that something that other people had done with children? I mean, I know we use puppets to talk to children a lot, right? But like, how did that come about? Because it, it is, it, it does sound a little funny, but then when you really think about it, you're like, well, you can't have these children necessarily like punishing real children or exactly. real people. That's not yeah. going to work. The main reason was that from a research standpoint, we have to get past the IRB. And so we have to do ethical studies. And so the, I don't the think institutional that... review board. These are the people who decide yes. whether or not something is ethical in, in a study setting. Exactly. And yeah. so we figured it would make more sense to do this with puppets because it's not as intense, if that makes sense. But I wasn't the first person to do this. So there was, like I mentioned in the lab, um, Paul Bloom's lab that I did my PhD in, him and Karen Wynn and Kylie Hamlin, they weren't the first to use puppets, but they were the first to sort of develop this method where children are evaluating or interacting with puppets who act either nice or mean. And so they were sort of the first people to develop that specific setup. And I sort of developed and built on it for the specific study I was doing. So you find through the study that it, do it doesn't seem that children have this strong desire to physically punish wrongdoers, but many adults do. Corporal yes. punishment has a lot of support in American society and, and many other societies, we should say. So, so yeah. that, that belief, the belief that physical punishment is sometimes okay, it has to come along at some point. That's true. And so we have some other work that we're developing. I haven't done the full analysis on it, but I can speak to it. So I think in American society, although there is support for corporal punishment in some senses, I think that the children in our studies, they're not corporally punished frequently, if at all. I think it's become a practice that's not really utilized in America as much. And as a result, I think when kids think about punishment, they think about, oh, my privileges are getting taken away. I'm not going to be able to play with my iPad today. I'm not going to be able to watch cartoons. So punishment doesn't take this corporal form for them quite as much anymore. Mm. And we've done some cross-cultural work in India and then also in Uganda. And we just ask kids, like, tell me about punishment. Tell me how punishment takes the form in your everyday life. And we see kids will bring up corporal punishment considerably more in those cultures than in the United States. So kids in the United States say things like, oh, I'll get sent to timeout or I'll get sent to the principal's office. Whereas kids in other cultures, because they practice punishment differently, say things like, oh, I might get hit. And as a result, I think the results from the study you mentioned, I think are just reflecting how they're punished. And so they don't really think of, you know, hitting a puppet as punishment. In fact, they might think it's kind of just you know, an interaction with them on this computer. Corporal punishment is maybe increasingly non-normative. Exactly. Yeah, I'm like, and I would argue this is a good thing, but... Exactly, I, yeah, me too. <laughs> so this actually kind of leads to the way that you conducted the experiments behind your most recently published study in the journal Nature Human Behavior. These kids didn't get to bop a Muppet on the head, but they were asked to decide whether to punish another misbehaving child by taking away their iPad. Exactly. And you can see some of the inspiration for that specific choice, given that we didn't find the corporal punishment findings in my earlier work. 
But there was in in this new experiment, there was a caveat, and and I I love this. It's like it's a little curveball. If they chose to enact punishment on this other child who had misbehaved, I think by by ripping up another kid's picture. Is that right? Did I exactly? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So so this kid allegedly had had ripped up another kid's paper, and these children who were the test subjects could decide punish the child or not. But for some of the children, if they chose to enact the punishment, their own iPad would be taken away. That's that's quite the double bind. Yes, it's the key twist of the study. Doing that research and doing that project was one of the most fun projects I've ever worked on. And I think it's because so much was at stake for the participants. They really, really had to think about what decision they were going to make, in part because they just love playing on these iPad games. And so to give it up just was a huge sacrifice for them. And so I think it's just, you know, it's a neat experimental feature where we can sort of really, really test kids in this intense decision paradigm. But it's also fun to see them sort of think about what's at stake. What did you think was going to happen? Going into it, I'm not the first to have done a study looking at what what we're describing is in technical terms, costly third-party punishment. That's the phrase that we use in this research. I'm not the first to have looked at that. And so I, I had suspicions that in this specific study, children would also be willing to do it. But there was another element of the design of the study where we also manipulated for participants how we described the punishment. And this was really essential. So for some participants, we told them if they decided to give up the iPad, that the transgressor, the person who ripped up the artwork, would not be told why. And then in another set of participants, we told them that if the participant decided to punish, the transgressor would be told why, so they could learn a lesson. The transgressor had the potential to learn a lesson. And that's where I was more unsure. I wasn't sure, depending on those different explanations, how much punishment we would see. And that's where, you know, was the sort of key aspect of the study that I was really unsure about and curious to see what would happen. Let me see if I have this right. About a quarter of the kids chose to enact the punishment, even if it meant losing their own tech toy. But when you told the kids that the child they were punishing would be told why they were being punished, the children who were being studied were more likely to accept a personal loss so that the punishment would be handed down. Did I get that right? That's exactly right. So the first key finding is that children were willing to make the sacrifice to punish the transgressor, even when the transgressor had no potential to learn a lesson. And then the second key finding is that they do that even more if the transgressor has a possibility of learning a lesson. And so it shows that there's sort of two reasons children might be punishing in this case. One is they sort of want to inflict emotional damage. So they want them to feel sad. (laughs) They want the transgressor to not play on the iPad, but they also want them to know why so that they could maybe learn a lesson or reform their behavior in the future. But there is a subset of children, I gather, that don't care if they learn the lesson why. They just needed them to be punished. Yeah. And those are the most interesting kids to me, honestly. I think (laughs) those are the most fascinating participants because you could see that it meant so much to them to have this transgressor be punished for their misbehavior or their misdeeds. And they just didn't really seem to care whether the transgressor would learn a lesson. They just really wanted the transgressor to feel sad. And, you know, in some ways that sounds mean, but it's also valuable. You know what I mean? Like, 
if someone does something really wrong, I think we all have this intuition. And that's what the study's getting at, that, you know, justice needs to be served. I don't care if they learn. They need to, you know, experience something negative for justice to be served in the universe. <laughs> and and what they've helped you establish, and this is the finding of the study, is it's some pretty compelling evidence that children are motivated by multiple ideas about why we punish or why punishment is necessary, but they, they do seem to be more motivated by the idea of teaching a lesson over and above only seeking retribution. Yes, that's true. And it seems like if punishment can serve this, this teaching function, a lot of kids will do it. A lot of kids will sacrifice that iPad to punish the transgressor in the case where they'll learn a lesson. I think we ended up conducting two studies and across both of them, the first one had slightly higher proportion of children who were willing to do that. I think it was around 76. In the second study, it was a bit lower, but still we're well above 50% of children willing to make that sacrifice in that case. When they're making this decision and, and you're watching them go through this, you know, have you ever seen, you've seen the videos of the kids with the marshmallow right mm -hmm. on the table and they're told, you know, like, wait and don't eat the marshmallow and you get more later. And they just like, the poor things are just so anguished. And I'm wondering, like, when you're watching these kids decide whether or not to give up their iPad, are they anguished or do they, they make are. the decision pretty quickly? They're, they're anguished. They are. A lot of them are quite anguished. And I mean, they're also trying to weigh other considerations on top of it. They're weighing so many different things in this experiment. They're, so take, for example, the kids who were told the transgressor wouldn't learn a lesson. They're like, oh, well, I like this iPad a lot, but they won't learn a lesson, but they did something bad. And they're trying to, you know, mentally figure out what that means for their behavior. They're trying to sort of sort through all of those different features and then make a decision. And it seems for a lot of them, it's quite challenging for them to make this sort of decision. And if you ask them, they, they do have pretty you know clear justifications for why they do it, though, which is, is really interesting. I mean, you're really asking them to do some serious like moral calculus. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> what happens, do you think when we change the level of the transgression, let's say it's not a kid ripping up a picture, it's a kid punching another kid in the face? Yes, it's a good question. Again, things we've thought about, but the IRB are, is limiting our capacities here to probably right. test these things in the future. I think that we could test this with adults too, because mm -hmm. it would be an interesting question just in general, not even from a developmental perspective. I think as things get worse, I would guess, I would hypothesize that we'd be more retributive. We'd be more willing to make the sacrifice, even if it doesn't teach a lesson, because the transgression's just so bad that we feel a strong desire for punishment to be enacted, if that makes sense. But again, I don't know. We'd need to collect data on it. Let's say you got to run this again with, with one change. What would you change? What Would you change the ripping up of the paper? Would you change the the iPad? Would you trade that out for video games? What What do you think? <laughs> I guess. So we're, we're doing some follow-ups. So I feel like I have to, that's my, my answer is the ones that, the variations that we're doing now, which is actually changing the social relationship between the participant child Ooh. and the transgressor. And what we're doing is we're manipulating what group they're in. So it's either someone who's in your group or someone who's in a different group. And we want to see whether this might impact why you punish. 
And the idea here is that if the transgressor is someone in a different group, you might be less concerned with teaching them a lesson and more concerned with harming them. Whereas if the transgressor is in your group, you would be more concerned with teaching them a lesson and you would really want to minimize harming them. And so it seems like the motivations that underlie punishment probably really depends on the social context that you're in. And so I think the study that we're talking about is really just the first step to understanding these questions more deeply. I feel like this has so much to potentially say about the political moment that we live in right now. A hundred percent. Okay, so kids offer us some pretty important clues about human nature because they they haven't spent nearly so much time conditioned by our society in in whatever way, right? But even very young kids exist in a world in which punishment is everywhere. Let's say we could figure out how to set up this experiment in in every meaningful way, but do it with apes. Do you (laughs) think we'd find an innate inclination toward punishment for the purpose of lesson teaching rather than retribution? I do want to dwell first before answering your question on the first part, because I think this is something that can be confusing. And it often comes up in discussions of this work in particular, which is we are testing children who are between, you know, four and seven years of age. And by no means did I want to make the claim that children do not have some exposure to punishment by this point in their life. Of course they do. Like two-year-olds are punished, three-year-olds are punished. That's certainly the case. Um, And so I don't want anyone to, you know, walk away thinking that this is sort of a natural, innate thing because the study does not provide evidence for that. In fact, it only provides evidence that this is present or sort of early emerging in children, but we can't really speak to whether that's sort of a more natural inclination or, you know, a more socialized one that just comes online very early. That being said, the best way to test that is exactly what you're suggesting. If we could design this for apes, what would we find? And I think it's a very, very interesting idea. Uh, There's some work that seems to suggest, though, that actually apes, when it comes to this specific type of punishment that I referred to earlier as third-party punishment, apes actually don't really do that. And so I actually think not only would they not punish for the purposes of teaching a lesson or for sort of retributive reasons, they just don't do it at all. And so the third-party punishment phenomenon, this idea that we punish someone who hurts someone else, even when we as the witness is unaffected, that seems to be a pretty uniquely human phenomenon, in fact. When you immerse yourself in this sort of thoughtfulness and academic exploration of punishment, when you're going about your daily life and you witness punishment or you think about like, oh, I need to, you know, I need to address that, Mm -hmm. right? What does it do in your head? Where do you go? Or do do you just sort of, can you separate out sort of this academic exploration of this subject with the way that it impacts your life? It's a funny question. I mean, for the most part, I'm not really in the position to punish many people, (laughs) I guess, (laughs) thankfully. But the way this sort of research, I think, does impact how I think about just current events and real world issues is that I think... A lot of people like to think their punishment is for good reasons. They like to think it's for these sort of consequentialist motives. They want to think they're punishing for the purposes of teaching people lessons and making society better. And I guess just 
I'm not totally convinced that people recognize that much of their desire to punish is driven by an interest in harming people as well, sort of inflicting emotional damage. It's sort of this combination. And I wonder if people were more aware of that, if they would rethink whether they would punish or choose some sort of alternative option, such as, you know, maybe we should help the victim or we shouldn't, you know, we shouldn't send people to jail, but we should try to provide them with, you know, social services or the ability to, you know, reform their behavior in a more productive way that doesn't require them to, you know, go to jail or to pay a fine or something like that. And just sort of like going back to my first question, I was teasing you about sort of the darkness of the subject matters that you've explored. Do you ever wake up and just go like, I actually don't want to study punishment today. I want to study like unbridled joy. <laughs> um, I think I'm too into it right now. You know, I just, you know, started this area. I have not wanted to stray as of yet, but I think that's a good thing. But I will say there's some other projects that I've been working on that sort of look at children's inclinations to be pro-social towards other people. And that work is also really, really fun and looking at how children are really naturally interested in helping others and think about helping and pro-social behavior. And so that's also sort of another different area of research that I'm also involved in. So I, I like to think I look at both sides of the coin, the good side and the bad side. <laughs> that's Julia Marshall. You can learn more about her at juliaannmarshall.com. That's Anne with an E. And you can read her study on the motives children have for punishing others in nature human behavior. Julia Marshall, thank you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio. And if you happen to live in Utah, you can listen to us every Thursday at 1030 a.m. on UPR. If you miss us then, you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. Our producer is Naomi Ward. Our associate producer is Mia Dora. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas.